So let me uh, first just give a big hearty thanks to Bethany and the musicians and all that have contributed to, to tonight's uh, service. Every year I say this, but it's so very true that uh, the musical expression, the opportunity to think about and sit with these words of these beautiful carols and songs and to think about these texts of scripture amidst some artistic flourish just helps anchor our imagination and really enlarge our imagination so that we become a people that actually can enter Advent and long for that which God promises. So Advent, of course, is the beginning of the Christian year. And it's a strange place to start because we begin with darkness, right? We sit in darkness. We sit in these spaces of longing. It's not Christmas yet, um, we tell ourselves. While everything in our culture is saying, it is Christmas already. It started back in October. Start buying if you haven't already started. Advent says, no, you really need to be a people if you're to be God's people who look out on the world and you say, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And you look at those things inside of your own lives and you look at those things in the lives and the stories of your friends and you say, it's not the way it's supposed to be. There's a lot that is missing in our world. And so like the prophets of old, we take up those words and we cry out, how long, O Lord? Like, how long? When are you going to finish that which you started? I don't know if you were thinking about this as we were singing that beautiful, beautiful carol, Love Divine, that is reset and reconstituted in some beautiful ways tonight. Finish then thy new creation. Finish then thy new creation. An Advent people cry out, Lord, how long before you finish then your new creation? Fleming Rutledge, uh, the Episcopal priest and writer, had published a volume of her sermons last year on Advent, and she's rather old. I love Fleming, by the way, but she is getting up there, and she still preaches a lot, actually. Um, and she said that in her decades of preaching sermons on Advent, that she never, ever was at a loss for some fresh headline out of the newspapers to illustrate the loss, the longing that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. So I pulled up my newsfeed this afternoon on the New York Times and just read a couple of things that were just right there, immediate protests in Hong Kong continue. Political protests, many people are seeking asylum and refuge in Taiwan. Video games and online chat rooms are a haven for sexual predators. I think we knew that, but we always need to be reminded of that horrific reality. Last week, as I was preparing for another sermon earlier in the week, um, I came across a story out of Chicago. A young woman was murdered in a parking garage because she ignored the cat calls of a man in the garage. So she was sexually assaulted and killed. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. And it doesn't end with the headlines because you've got your own stories. I have my stories of where I've experienced pain and loss and suffering and in my friends' lives and you just, they just, it just goes on and on and on, and it's profoundly real. And so Advent is this really, really beautiful moment in which God says, cry out, be angry, be frustrated, become almost impatient. It's hard to imagine God saying impatience might be good, but this is a moment in Advent when we say, Lord, I can't take it any longer. We cry out that the world that is not the way it's supposed to be would actually become that moment when he finishes his new creation. And we realize that if we do that in the presence of a God 
who is moral, who is just, who is good, who loves, that maybe all of those longings of the human heart that are in my heart and in your heart, maybe it's a moment when you realize I'm not crazy for wanting things to be different. God wants things to be different. And so because of his presence, we lament rather than despair. And there's a big difference there. We look at the dark realities. We acknowledge them as real. We recognize that they're not the way it's supposed to be, but we don't despair precisely because of the presence of a God who loves, even when in our lives it feels very much like he's absent and not listening. Have you ever felt that way about God? That he's absent, that he's not listening. The theologian Robert Jensen says, um, that one of the striking things about the God of the Bible is that from the very beginning of, of the story of the Bible, and we noticed it tonight as we were reading these snippets, right, these high points of the biblical story, you notice this, that God is a God who strikes up conversation. Right there in the midst of the garden when Adam and Eve sin, God is striking up a conversation. He's talking to his human creation because we uniquely bear his image and we actually can have a conversation with God. It's a beautiful thing, he says. It's a unique thing. And in the pages of Scripture, Israel is that unique first human community that gets to have that conversation, but they do so for the sake of the whole world. And as you follow that story, it moves up to the point of Jesus. The Jewish community had all kinds of ways of thinking about and reflecting on God's presence. They had the tabernacle that reminded them that they were a people that lived before God and that God lived in their very midst. They talked about the Shekinah glory of God, which might mean something like the settlement one or the resident one. And that's so important because it's easy for us to think of God as out there or transcendent or great or beyond. But what God was asking his people to remember was he wasn't just great, he was present. He dwelt among them. He was near them. He was the kind of God they could have a conversation with. So Christians, we wait in darkness, but with great hope because of the unique way that the conversation that God wanted to have with humanity settled in one Jewish man, Jesus. Glory came to earth, and when glory came to earth in the person of Jesus, he promised, I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. I will finish the new creation. It will become a full-blown reality. So in the midst of our confusion, I certainly feel confused at times. In the midst of our doubts, I have doubts, you have doubts. In the midst of our frustration and even our anger, what do we do? We circle back over and over and over again to this very simple story of Jesus because Jesus is the only concrete articulation of God that we have. He reveals the invisible God to us. The journalist Philip Yancey says that the story of Jesus is too good not to be true, and that sounds kind of like an odd way to put it, but think about it for just a moment, because if you've ever taken time to read the gospel story of Jesus' life, pick any of the gospel writers you want, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, if you've ever taken the time, what you find, if you just listen to what is being said, is what? I sure hope this is true. I sure hope 
there was a man who lived this way. I sure hope that God is like that man. Because everything you see about Jesus is a man of courage. He speaks truth to power. But he always does so with this motivation of love, that they might actually hear truth and be turned and changed. He binds up the brokenhearted. He welcomes sinners. The moral losers of his community are welcome to his table. I mean, just on and on it goes. He, he heals the sick. He feeds the hungry, right? He raises the dead. I mean, how can you ever read the story of Jesus and not say, I sure hope that's true? Because I want to encounter someone like that Jesus. I want to experience love like that. I want to be welcomed by God like that. I want to be welcomed to his table, to sit in his presence. I want his healing. I want the declaration that I am forgiven of my sins because I have many. I sure hope it's a true story. The church bears this story into the world. Now, here's the hard thing. When I look at the church and I think about the church of our day or the church throughout history, when you've read a little bit of church history, you very quickly realize that we don't carry this truth very well. We don't embody the story of Jesus very well. In fact, sometimes when you read the story of Jesus and you look at the way the church really interacts or is well known, you know, you, you think, I don't, there's a disconnect, right? There's something missing. There's this enormous gap. Because we live in a day when we get hung up on particular truth battles and we forget that the truthfulness of who Jesus is always leads to things like fruitful reconciliation and relationships of love. That's the outcome of Jesus' presence among his people that love him and turn to him. The church holds truth in some pretty destructive ways, it seems to me. And if you're someone who's never been hurt by that truth and you're still in the church, I'm really glad that you're here because you have a good argument. The church gets drawn into the political hopes and aspirations of the right and the left. Do you sense that? Have you ever been caught in those battles around maybe Thanksgiving dinner table and some Christians are Democrats and some are Republicans and there's just this war that sort of ensues between everyone and you think, I don't get where the kingdom of God is in all of that. We forget, we forget that the kingdom of God doesn't align itself perfectly with Republicans or Democrats or whatever other political agenda you happen to have. But here's the thing, all of these problems, all of this destruction, all of this distortion of the way we embody the story of Jesus, right alongside of it, there are other stories. When you look across Christian history, even the places where missionaries have been and they've lived poorly or oddly with other persons of other cultural spaces in ways that, you know, don't at all respect their culture, right? Let's just be honest, right? But right there in the midst of those situations even, what do you find? Christians building hospitals, Christians teaching people to read and write, people coming up and binding up wounds, people caring about the trauma they've experienced in their lives, and on and on it goes because Christians who have been touched by a God who loves them, they show love. They serve. They begin to embody these kinds of things. They make sure hungry people are fed. A friend of mine, a songwriter, has a wonderful line in one of his songs, and it just is this very simple line that I feel like I've hung on to for years. Don't confuse the cup with the content it holds. And it feels almost like, you know, in that moment of saying something like that, you're saying, hey, I recognize we're a bunch of hypocrites, but please come back to the story of Jesus. 
just make sure you get back to the story of Jesus. So if you're someone outside of Christianity and you're burned by the church in some way, you're offended by the political associations, as many of the people, by the way, inside the church are offended by those same very things, let me just urge you, don't confuse the cup with the content it holds. Try to find the stories where Jesus is present in our world and where love is shown in our world by those who are loved by him. Don't confuse the cup with the content it holds. Let the darkness, rather, in our world drive you to inquire again about the person of Jesus. Get near real Christian folk who live and walk through the pain and the darkness of this world, who live with their own suffering and the suffering of others simply because they love. Tragedy is real but it is not the last word over our lives or over our world. Do you believe that? If you don't, you'll tip toward despair. You're, you'll tip toward cynicism, which might even be worse than despair. But if you believe that tragedy, because of Jesus, is not the last word, you'll tip toward hope and you'll tip toward courage and you'll tip toward being a person of courage. Why? Because glory the glory of God's own self, took up residence in our world. And so here we are tonight, and we're crying out, how long? When will you finish thy new creation? When will we pure and spotless be? Let us see thy great salvation, perfectly restored in thee. Change from glory into glory till at last we take our place till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. I want to live in that day. I want to live toward that day. I want you to live toward that day. In the midst of all your pain and your suffering and your sorrow, in the midst of all of these headlines, what would it be like if the church, if we were a people, that believe that one day, because of the great love of God for us in Jesus Christ, the glory that took up residence in our world, will leave us in such a place that we are those very people lost in wonder and praise. It feels impossible, but it is the very promise of God to his Advent people. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we admit that we struggle with these words that we've been singing and the words that we've been reading because we have lived lives that are broken and we live in the midst of a broken people and we don't always know how to hold on to hope. So meet us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as we continue in our time of worship and remind us of the truthfulness of Jesus that we would not confuse the cup with the continent that it holds, but we would be lost in the beauty of your love for us. Meet us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.